0: Namaste. So today we have uh, a very interesting chapter, chapter 3, the human disciple. So, uh, why should we speak about the disciple at all? After all, the Gita is primarily Sri Krishna's great teaching. But the great teaching is for the great, or those who, if you use a modern term, who want to really rise to their own greatnesses. All of us have an Arjun who is concealed within us, which in modern times has been discarded as myth and legion. But Indian thought gave a great importance to these stories. They shaped the mind of the race. They continue even now to inspire many generations. When we discard these things as myths and legends, particularly when you read the story of Arjun and uh, what kind of things he had acquired, his own life, his exploits, then it seems really near superhuman. And yet he is very human in many ways. So, it has been discarded by the modern mind and Sri says one of the problems of the democratic ideal is that it has diminished greatness in humanity. Because everybody is same, everybody is... uh, Well, everybody is same in a sense. There is no doubt about it. But it is equally true that there is within us concealed a divinity which some bring out or which is brought out in some and with others it does not. Even when, even the outer possibilities are same, skill is same, development is same, still there is a difference. So we see this in the story of Khan and Arjun. both are excellent archers and both in their own way have goodness inside them. And yet there is a difference and that difference we need to understand when we talk about Arjun. So Arjun, as we know is the main protagonist in the story of Mahabharata and the word Arjun means the fair one. Not fair physically though some people interpret it like that but Shri Krishna also gives him another name, Krishna. He gives him similar name, which means dark. So the fair one is about the one who has led his life with certain ideals. And you can, we can see it in the Gita, that he has led his life with certain ideals, very high sattvic ideals, and he would not let go of those ideals just for the sake of kingdom, for the sake of wealth or anything. And all the more because he is also known as dhananjaya, one who can win all the wealth he is also Parantapa, the scourge of the foes. So when he stands in battle, he is fearless in action. So you see, all the names that are described with regard to Arjun, the Gita itself describes so many names and each of them is so beautiful and interesting. The most common name with which Arjun is addressed by Sri Krishna in the Gita is Partha and Bharata. And Kaunteya. So you see, it speaks about a civilization that Arjun is known by the name of his mother. So, Parth Pritha, because that's how one of the names of Kunti. Kaunteya. And we see this in ancient Indian times. Nandan, Devaki Nandan. We lost that uh, glory now. Children are known by their father's name. But this was a time when children were still known by their uh, mother's name, and what was his family name? Family name was not his surname. He is just, he is also addressed as Bharata, Bharata after the name of the legendary Bharat. So he has to uphold when Sri Krishna calls him Bharata. It means you have to uphold the highest ideals that your own great 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 uh, grand sire has, uh, you know, started. Bharat is is the great legendary king after whose name this. Ancient land has been named and he is the first king to have signed a treaty with, or the emperor who signed a treaty with ten kings whom he had won in the battle. And the treaty was that all of us will work together for a common progress. It's To put it in a summary way, that you will follow your own uh, essential way, you will prosper and we all will each help each other prosper. So that's how the Sanatan Dharma Foundation was laid. Sarve Bhavantu Sukhina, Sarve Santurne Ramya So he addresses him with that name There are other names also Jishnu, one who can conquer all the uh, Opposition and obstacles He is no, known as Gudakesh Why? Because he has mastered sleep So there is a whole story that When uh, these disciples Were getting training In Gurukul of Dronacharya uh, Arjun would keep awake at night Why? Because he said, well in, As far as daytime archery is concerned Many of us are similar but if I can, by conquering sleep does not mean he would not sleep. By conquering sleep, it means that if there is an occasion, he can forego sleep and fight with an equal uh, skill. His eyes could see in the dark, fix the target and shoot. So, it's that, that's what it means, Gudakesh. So, he is also regarded as, very interestingly, there is a name used by Sri Krishna to Arjuna, Anagha. Anagha literally means stainless one. Sinless, pure. So one would wonder that what is pure about Arjuna? How come he is sinless? This question was asked even to Nalnida once that, you know, Arjuna, at least we know that he was married to four four people. And he had his own, uh, you know, everybody has their difficulties. But why is Arjuna regarded as sinless? Because when you look into his motives, last time we were speaking about that, his motives were always pure. He could not do something out of wrong motives, false motives. And toward the later part in the Gita, Sri Krishna says, Arjun, you don't have to worry because you belong to the Devik Sampada. You are, you have the wealth of the Devas in you. So, there are many aspects of Arjun which are very interesting. Of course, Gandhi Vdhari, because he has been given the bow. So, Arjun is the hero of the battlefield of Kurukshetra and Sri krishna chooses him as the one to whom he will transmit the gita now this is very interesting that during that time there were other people there was vidur vidur had a lot of niti shastra vidur niti is regarded as one of the you know um, uh, very good treatises on political statesmanship just like vyas niti vidur niti and chanakya niti was not not much fond of chanakya niti He preferred Vyasniti, Vidurniti, that he should always be aligned with Dharma. Then there was um, Bhishma, who was, we all know, both mighty as well as, you know, he was uh, so much uh, in his own way aligned to Dharma. And such a powerful man, the most powerful man in that Kuru empire. And yet the Gita is given to Arjun. So what is special about Arjun? Arjun is a very many-sided person, very complex personality. So he is not only a warrior, he has a very softer side, wherein he is also a dancer. He knows music and one of his names he had assumed was Brihanallah because when he went to look at his uh, uh, the beauty of Arjun, he goes to um, uh, the heavens where he learns dance from Chitra the musician of the gods and Indra gives him the celestial weapons and then when he, during that period, one of the Apsaras falls in love with him. He says, I cannot marry you because you are also learning dance from the same guru. And therefore, you are my, uh, you are, you are my sister. And she curses him. She curses him that when you go back one, one year of your life, you will lose your masculinity. Which Arjuna uses beautifully when he is in Akyatwas. <laughs> so he says, okay, I'll live as a woman. So, he, he, that also turns into a blessing. So, that's Arjuna. And it reminds us that this, we take these two attitudes. One is God will do everything. The Gita contradicts that. God does everything, but there is a but. And there is a the human. So, the other extreme is, I will do everything. Both these extremes. So, in our Everyday life, it translates into these two kinds of thought. One, mother is doing everything. Mother will do everything. Or we take the other extreme and that is where we say, I am doing mother's work. Both extremes are not really true. (laughs) Mother is doing her work and we can place ourselves to be her channels and instruments. So wherever the two come, their perfection is built. The second part of this interesting combination is that, which which relates directly to this yoga. The Mother speaks about the double perfection, Shravinda also speaks about the higher and the lower perfection. So lower perfection is the human perfection, all the good qualities, the ethical qualities and various skills that we develop, capacities we develop. And the higher perfection is the divine perfection, divine qualities and divine capacities so there is a there is a tendency in yoga to discard the human entirely and talk about the divine perfection, but the mother speaks specifically that we have to engage with both the perfections we have to develop the human side and then we have to place it at the in the hands of the divine. so if the instruments are not developed, then even if we are surrendered, there is very little that uh, God can do with us he will yeah, of course he will. Keep us near. He will shower all his love equally. But there is a difference between developing oneself, placing a developed instrument at the in the hands of the divine, and just being like that. And you know, very very often there is a tendency. Now I have given myself to the mother, so there is nothing more that I need to develop. But we must also develop simultaneously all the different aspects of our beings. That's why we see in the ashram the mother speaks about so much about. An integral development, development of mind, development of heart, development of the vital will, development of physical body, all this is important. So this is the, um, in a way Gita paves the way to what is going to come in the future, the integral divine perfection of humanity. So Arjun has developed, he is among the, in fact as an archer he is the best because he has gathered such celestial weapons and even as a human being, he is excellent because uh, he has learned to master uh, all the skills and yet he does not use it in a fanciful manner. So, this is the story of Arjun, and we will read some very interesting passages. The human disciple. There is a whole uh, beautiful essay of Nalnida. On the ideal disciple, where it touches upon Arjun, that what makes Arjun an ideal disciple, and the adhikar bhed, which was so important in ancient times. Not everybody is ready and fit for the yoga. So. So we are on page twenty. Okay. Twenty the human disciple, such then is the divine teacher of the Gita, the eternal avatar. So eternal avatar, literally when the divine takes a human body for a certain work, he is permanently now a part of the earth consciousness. So it applies to Sri Aurobindo and the mother as well. That's what the mother said, that Sri Aurobindo will be present amongst us permanently. Because... He becomes, and that's where Sri Krishna's avatarik personality fused with Sri Aurobindo on 24th November. He, he never goes away. If at all he has to go, he will he will not go, but he will pass on the baton to whoever is going to follow him. For instance, we see Parshuram passing the baton to Sri Ram and so on and so forth. Sri Krishna to Sri Aurobindo. So the avatar never disappears from the earth. So he is the Eternal Avatar, and the Divine who comes down again and again, the Divine who has descended into the human consciousness, the Lord seated within the heart of all beings. So again, it applies at both levels. Shrivindo, his story: he came, he lived, he so-called departure. But also Shrivindo, who the moment he descends into the human consciousness. He is seated forever in the heart of man because he is the one now who governs the cycles. That's how the whole understanding of Avatar comes that he is the divine who is seated within it and for each cycle he assumes a certain name and form. So that's what we see with Sri Krishna and so on with Sri Aurobindo. He who guides us from behind the veil all our thought and action and hearts seeking even as He directs from behind the veil of visible and sensible forms and forces and tendencies, the great universal action of the world, which he has manifested in his own being. This is such a marvelous. All this creation is an unfolding happening within him. So he is the center and the circumference. Now the moment we say this, it means whichever way we go, we will end up touching him because there is nothing which can be outside him. So, there is nothing which can be called as eternally we are condemned because even if we fall in darkness, at some point we will touch him because he is everywhere. And it is he who is secretly pushing all the forces from behind the veil. All the strife of our upward endeavour and seeking finds its culmination and ceases in a satisfied fulfilment. When we can rend the veil and get behind our apparent self to this real self, can realize our whole being in this true lord of our being, can give up our personality to and into this one real person, merge our ever dispersed and ever converging mental activities into his plenary light, offer up our errant and struggling will and energies into his vast luminous and undivided will, at once renounce and satisfy all our dissipated outward moving desires and emotions in the plenitude of his self-existent bliss. Now mark the condition. When will struggle cease? People often have this question. Oh, life is so much full of struggle. They try this way and that way. When will it cease? All the strife of our upward endeavour and seeking finds its culmination and seizes in a satisfied fulfillment. So it's a fulfillment where you feel, there is a very beautiful word in Hindi, Param Vishram. So it is when you begin to dwell in the Lord, when you become one with the Lord. And what is needed for that? To rend the veil which is between our outer consciousness and the divine and get behind our apparent self to this real self. The apparent self we all know is I am Mr. So-and-so, the outer body, certain personality, certain kind of idea we have about ourselves, certain idea that others have about ourselves. All this is the apparent self. (coughs) Why apparent? It's something temporary, it's not something real, not abiding, not permanent. So we have to go behind it. Meaning thereby, the more we are attached to this apparent self, the more difficult it will be to come in contact with the divine. And that's the whole problem of surrender. We are attached to ideas, ways of life, opinions, desires, all this. And this attachment prevents us from discovering the real self. But if we were to go into it, if we renounce, Yuvindar is using the word at once renounce and satisfy. So, why, how can we renounce and satisfy? This is straight from the Ishupanishad, Tene Taktene Bhunjita. When we renounce the little self, when we renounce the little pleasures, when we renounce the desired self. What do we find? All that these were seeking. But seeking through devious means. Why do we seek these things? Because we believe it will satisfy us and give us happiness. It gives us happiness and satisfaction but alas, for a very short time. So it's like we get hooked up. That's how habits form. But if we were to renounce it, we'll actually get what we were seeking through this medium. So satisfy renounce and satisfy all our dissipated outward moving desires and emotions in the plenitude of the self-existent bliss. So this is the essence of, the, of human life, that human life is basically this kind of journey. In ignorance also we are pushed by the divine from behind the wheel and we think we are the doers, but we are not the doers. We are, only, we are simply instruments of all kinds of forces, Which are pushed by the divine And where they are leading us They are leading us Ultimately to reach the feet of the divine There is a very interesting story That when somebody goes to meet Shiva Or someone is actually going to meet Shiva And on the way he meets this snake Shiva has you know Vasuki around his neck And Vasuki is a long snake So Halfway he meets Vasuki And somehow he gets affected by the poison So he runs now He forgets Shiva he goes here, there, goes to the best doctors. Nobody can treat him. Finally, some very old Siddha yogi, he, people call him, he'll die. He alone can cure him. So he goes to this Siddha yogi and says, Sir, please save me. He says, fool, do you know where the snake came from? From Shiva. He only can cure you. Don't you understand this simple lesson? So we are like that bit by the serpent called the world, struggling, pained. And we are running here and there where the real remedy lies to fall at at the feet of the Lord. So the whole drama of life is so conjured that eventually whatever we may try, lasting satisfaction, bliss and whatever else we are seeking, we cannot find. We will find little bit. Why divine is giving little bit so that we can move on the journey because we are not ready for that At culmination. So he gives us little lollipops, little lollipops. After that, it doesn't taste. So he gives us a bigger lollipop. Even that becomes tasteless. Then a time comes when we are ready. And then he says, Now I'll give you the uh, real sweetener from which all lollipops have emerged. So this is the whole drama of human life in a nutshell. Arjuna, the disciple who receives his initiation on the battlefield is a counterpart of this conception. So on one side there is the divine, on the other side there is the human. He is the type of the struggling human soul who has not yet received the knowledge. So this one part of it because all of us are in ignorance. But what makes him fit to receive the knowledge? That's the important part. Why the Gita is given to him? Of course, today now it is available because it's the age when everything is readily available. And Mother at one place says this in context of her own writings. So this is a class where Ashram students and everybody is around. And she says, you know what, in olden times, there was a great stress laid on fitness for knowledge. Adhikarbhita. That we see in the story of Eklavya. So not everybody is ready to receive everything. And then she gives the story of, That boy called Yusuf who goes to his master and the master gives him an aran to carry a trunk which is uh, not locked and there is something inside and he says, you carry it to the village nearby, give it to another master. So he says, okay. He says, if you do it, I'll give you the knowledge. He says, wonderful. Such an easy task. So master says, hold on, hold on. There is one condition. What is the condition? Don't open it. He has not locked it. See, this is the problem of freedom. (laughs) You have the freedom to do anything you like. But there is a catch here. There is something written in footnote. If you misuse the freedom, you will miss, miss the opportunity. So, he carries that trunk. This is a story told by the mother as a story of initiation. And he gets more and more curious, more and more curious. So, and he says, what is there? I'll just take a look. How is master going to know? I am going to deliver it. Probably he'll not even ask me. As he opens, there is a little mouse inside. It runs away. Now he cannot. So, he comes back and says, I am so sorry. He says, yes, but now you have lost the adhikar for this knowledge. And the mother speaks of this. And then he speaks of the children. He says, my children, you are here. And you know all these things because I am telling you. And they are, they are now available. Now like print, everything is available. But there is a difference between reading and yet receiving the knowledge. So receiving the knowledge is not, it's not enough to read, know the literal meaning of the words, you know, analyze the words, sentences, be in a place. One becomes fit to receive the true knowledge when one has lived one's life in a certain way. And that the divine himself knows. So here is Arjuna where Shivinda says, but has grown fit to receive it. Arjuna has grown fit. Though everybody is in ignorance. Why has become fit? To receive it by action in the world in a close companionship and an increasing nearness to the higher and divine self in humanity. Now, he has not fought wars with Sri Krishna. It is the first time he is fighting the war. So, is his companionship with the divine self. What does it mean? Somebody who doesn't act just randomly, thoughtlessly. He tries to feel inside and his highest self, of course the divine self is not, Arjun is still in ignorance, he has not discovered him. But yet somebody who acts according to whatever highest he can conceive. And based on that when we act, then over a period of time we become ready and fit to receive the knowledge. So we see here, there is a method of explaining the Gita in which not only this episode, but the whole Mahabharata is turned into an allegory of the inner life and has nothing to do with our outward human life and action, but only with the battle of the soul and powers that strive within us for possession. That is a view which the general character and the actual language of the epic does not justify. So why is saying Arjuna is prepared through action in the world? If we turn it into a symbol, why it doesn't work? It doesn't work because you understand that inside I have to fight with my, uh, the asura's inside. But you have never taken that approach in real life, in outer life. I can give number of examples. And One of the examples which used to be uh, in the Indian setting or every setting, you are supposed to listen to the elders and the parents and the teachers. What if the parents and the elders and the teachers tell you something which you, your own deeper sense contradicts? For example, uh, you are married and the wife should be uh, mistreated or neglected. I am not even talking of the worst things. Why? Simply because she's not living her life according to what I want her to do. Your deeper sense says it is not the right thing. That my parents are wrong. And... You may read the Gita, but you are still in your real action. You are not living according to the divine self in humanity because the divine is in her. If everybody is the divine, we have to respect even within us. Is this the highest? So this is where we have to be careful that it is not just a symbolic story. It's a symbol, all right. But we can't escape. Basically, Shravindan is saying you can't escape the law of action. You can't sit in meditation under the, you know, Uh, big banyan tree and keep fighting inner battles. (laughs) You have to face the real battle in the real world simultaneously. They go together. And that's what the mother and Shirobindo speak of everywhere. And Shirobindo says that if we take this, if pressed this idea of symbolic would turn the straightforward philosophical language of the Gita into a constant laborious and somewhat puerile mystification. So, he is not in favour of that approach. Yes, the battle is also inner and Sri Krishna reveals that how you have to clear your inner ground, how you have to do yajna inside, how you have to, you know, cultivate the devic qualities. But also there is a war outside. You can't escape that. So, this they go on at both the levels. So, a few lines below. Arjuna, as we have seen, is the representative man of a great world struggle and divinely guided movement of men and nations. And this is what is going to come in the present age. More and more, yoga will manifest itself in the outside world, in the entire field. We can't run away from life and become a claimant to the Gita. You have to face life in its grim honest. In the Gita, he typifies the human soul of action brought face to face through that action in its highest and most violent crisis with the problem of human life and its apparent incompatibility with the spiritual state or even with the purely ethical ideal of perfection. So this is where when we all our highest standards, he has lived his life by high standards. That's what we see throughout in the Mahabharata. Arjuna's lived life according to certain standards. He would not, for instance, ever use a celestial weapon against those who are not equipped to use it. That's the kind of high standard he follows. So, he's the man who is prepared by that. There is a very beautiful line in Savitri. After we have served this great divided world, God's bliss and oneness are our inborn right. So, then it comes naturally. Okay. We'll turn to page 22. Arjun is, in the language of the Gita, a man subject to the action of the three gunas or modes of the nature force and habituated to move unquestioningly in that field like the generality of men. The three gunas which Krishna will elaborate are the sattva, rajas and tamas. So these are like the three currents, Ganga, Yamuna, Saraswati, in which we are bathing all the time. So we can say Ganga is like the quieter uh, guna and the, uh, Yamuna is the more uh, bumpy ride and Saraswati is the one which balances. So one guna which we have, tamas, it, everybody comes under tamas and during that state there is a state of inertia. Uh, lack of will to progress uh, but the, the greater people they overpower tamas by the force of rajas in them so the, if there is a call for duty take the example of a doctor who is very sleepy and there is a call for a patient oh I am very sleepy ok give him this medicine so this is tamas is overpowered or there is an urge to learn something new oh it is too much too difficult oh Srivindu's writings they are very difficult why? because it's tamas And the other is rajas. Rajas impels us to action but usually in action without knowledge. People jump to act without giving a deeper consideration and thought. And the third is sattva where there is a deep consideration of the action. It is still an ignorance because even in that action it may not be the divine will which is expressing. But at least there is a deliberation, there is a discernment to the extent we can use, there is reason and all the high standards are applied. So these are the three gunas. So Arjun like all men are subject to it. He is not of a violent… Okay, no. He justifies his name only in being so far pure and sattvic as to be governed by high and clear principles and impulses and habitually control his lower nature by the noblest law which he knows. So, in that sense, he is Arjun. Arjun means the pure one, the fair one. So, he is not pure in the highest sense of the word, but he is pure enough to govern his life by the highest principles. And that's why it's so important, because very often people speak about going beyond morality. So, they think we can become immoral. That's not what the Gita teaches. Because morality, ethics prepares the nature. It's not the last strain of human Development. But it is an indispensable strain. That's how Shobindo described when he speaks about the moral nature. He says that few can really bypass this stage. So there has to be a stage when, uh, in fact, the mother says that how is a human being uh, created? Or rather, how does human, whom do you call a human being? He who controls the vital animal in him by his moral, ethical, uh, ideals and reason. One who can control the animal is human. So who is superhuman? Superhuman who transcends the moral, ethical, ideal and reason by intuition. So this is the, So, we can't skip human and jump from the animal to the superman. So there is some high ideals by which one lives and then one is prepared. So a sattvic person lives a life, it is still in ignorance but a time comes when there is sufficient development and the divine enters and lifts him out. He is not of a violent, asuric disposition, not the slave of his passions. So this slave of his passions, at one place the mother speaks about it, even in the Auroville context she says, she says, we are not here to lead the life of desires. We are here to master it so, because, so that we can move towards supermanhood. She says, Auroville is not a place meant to satisfy your desires and passions and all those things. Very clearly, even she has said that, you know, people. It supplies in the ashram also, because if we lead that kind of life, then it's very clear that I may say that supramental, superman, but I am not even a human being. To become a human being, you have to master these things. They have their place. Mastery does not mean transformation. But they have their place according to certain high noble standards which we we may discover within us. He is not of a violent Asuric disposition, not the slave of his passions. So Asuras are always pushed by ego, pride, anger, lust, but has been trained to high calm and self-control, to an unswerving performance of his duties, and firm obedience to the best principles of the time and society in which he has lived, and the religion and ethics to which he has been brought up. So, when we live life like that, obedience to higher principles, which whatever religion, society or milieu we belong to, and we live according to that, then we are ready for the higher teaching. He is egoistic like other men, but with the purer or sattvic egoism which regards the moral law and society And the claims of others, and not only your predominantly his own interests, desires and passions, how beautifully he is describing a sattvic human being. I have certain claims, egoistic claims, but others also have their claims. I can't just be doing things keeping my interest in the forefront. And if I do it and disregard the interest of others, even today a rational society understands it, that, We are not alone. Things are not meant only for my use. Because if we do that, then we end up devouring the world. And it applies at every level. It applies at national level. It applies at community levels. It applies at the level of groups. He has lived and guided himself by the Shastra, the moral and social code. The thought which preoccupies him, the standard which he obeys is the Dharma. And dharma is, uh, there are several definitions Shurabindu himself give us, but here it is in the sense, he himself is uh, describing it, that there is a collective wisdom that gets accumulated in a group life. For instance, within the Indian context, with 10,000 years plus of evolution, there is a dharma which has evolved over over a period of time in the Hindu way of life. So, it is, people have practiced, lived a life in certain ways and said, these are the high standards. And we live according to that. For instance, you should be honest in your dealings. This is dharma over a period of time it has been. It may be very uncomfortable to begin with. But there are people, truthfulness is something which you, if over a period of time, through all the stories, tales and inbuilt, ahinsa, a state that you should not be a violent disposition, violent deed. So all these are... Dharma, uh, the, you know, highest standard, are courage, all these are aspects of dharma. And then he says that why, why does Arjuna face a crisis? There is another interesting aside to it, next passage. It is typical again of the pragmatic man that it is through his sensations that he awakens to the meaning of his actions. So, there are these uh, two kinds of people one who are what is known in as paper tigers. So, you know, ah, you should do this, I'll do this, I'll do that. But when it comes to the real action, they shrink. It could be out of fear. And because they are living in sensations, so the import of something doesn't hit them till they are face to face with the actual crisis. I remember one of the stories as a child... 15, 16 year old, we had in India an anti corruption movement. So there were a lot of people who Jay Prakash Narayan had started it. So some of us as youngsters got engaged because idealism. So during that time we had decided that tomorrow we will do a march. So 100 of us had decided and actually we reached the spot there were only nine of us so the police easily apprehended us i was one of them <laughs> okay <laughs> because when you meet a challenge face to face it's very different from the uh, from doing it in the mind so arjun belongs to that he is ready for fight he has always fought but what is the problem he has never fought against his own people he has always had a fight even the deadliest of warriors he has fought and defeated He has even saved the life of Karn (laughs) Amazingly, when after they have graduated from Dronacharya school, and uh, Dronacharya asks uh, them as Dakshina to go and defeat uh, Drupad, who is his arch enemy. So these people, ah, we will go and do it just to show off. So they go there, they all get captured. None of them can do anything, they seek help. Karna's help comes later, that's during Duryodhana. Then Arjun goes and releases them. Then another story where Arjun is caught by all the Gandharvas, Karna is caught by the Gandharvas. So during that time, what does he do? He doesn't say, oh, this fellow has always been competing with me. He is likely to take side of Duryodhana. he says, no, it's my duty to go and save. And so he goes and saves. He says, I am going to save him. So there are several moments where he shows that you know he is a truly a sattvic man who is living by the high ideals. Even in Virat, youth, he has uh, flattened all of them by, all of them: Karna, Bhishma, Dronacharya, and all of them who had come for the battle. Duryodhan. So he has a fantastic arrow with which they all can uh, become unconscious, comatose. So along with him, there is this boy. <laughs> who has apparently come to fight. He doesn't know Arjun, the, his charioteer is actually Arjun because he is under a disguised name. So, he says, oh, so wonderful. I didn't know you have such great powers. Now, kill them all. He says, no, that's not how Eshatriya behaves. I have put made them unconscious because you had promised that you will get pieces of their dresses for the dolls of your sister. You just do that and come back. I am not going to kill them when they are unconscious. So these were the high noble standards of a kshatriya He has lived by them. He doesn't mind facing But he has never actually faced fight in this way where directly his own grandfather, he, he would never kill them. He knows that they are the ones for whom one lives. So he is a family guy. So now he faces this problem. And what is the problem? Page 25, he starts... Telling Sri Krishna, I don't mind fighting, but we fight and win a battle for our own people, our family members, so that we can sit and enjoy. But look what has happened. Page 24, last line. This is Arjuna is telling Sri Krishna, Granted that the offence, the aggression, the first sin... The crimes of greed and selfish passion which have brought things to such a pass came from the other side. Yet armed resistance to wrong under such circumstances would be itself a sin. And crime worse than theirs. See, this is how a certain kind of thought, which today goes as Gandhian thought comes. It's okay, they have done the wrong. Should I respond to wrongs? Do they make a right? So Arjun is giving this logic. I agree they have done it wrong. Should I also do the wrong thing? Very convincing logic. So he says, if I do this, that itself is a sin and crime worse than theirs because they are blinded by passion and unconscious of guilt. While on this side, it would be with a clear sense of guilt that the sin would be committed. See, how interesting. Any rational... Noble person would have this idea Oh he is a fool He is blinded by passion He is doing foolish things Should I also become like him And do the same act It would be a worse sin Because I am at least conscious Now we will not give Sri Krishna's answer now Because that's how the whole thing Develops in the Gita It looks very straightforward argument And I think many people today Who would resonate with it After all He has a point there And for what? For the maintenance of family morality, of the social law and the law of the nation, these are the very standards that will be destroyed by this civil war. Imagine Shrivinder is using the word civil war. He says, what is the point? We will fight between each other. This is not what a fight is meant for. He says, if my family had moved to other side of the border and come, Against me, maybe I would have. But this is my own family. We are all together. Now all this logic will sound so fantastically correct. (laughs) So, that's why the Gita is so important because Sri Krishna will develop the argument to understand how things are, what they are so that we are not fooled in our decision either by passions or by reason. So, one who, is not fooled, one who is not fooled by passion, uses reason, is human. One who is not tricked even by reason, but uses a higher guidance, that is the superhuman. And that's the journey which the Gita will open for us. The family itself will be brought to the point of annihilation. Corruption of morals and loss of the purity of race will be engendered. The eternal laws of the race... And moral law of the family will be destroyed. See how Rama had established the family unit. So family is the first unit which the divine establishes. Second unit is nation and the third is the world. So he says they will be destroyed. Reign of the race, ruin of the race, the collapse of its high tradition ethical degradation and hell for the authors of such a crime. These are the only practical results possible of this monstrous civil strife. Strife taking place in house, within a community, within a group life, within a nation. So Arjun has a point. (laughs) So, therefore cries Arjun, Casting down the divine bow and inexhaustible quiver given to him by the gods for that tremendous hour. Look at the paradox. Gods have empowered him for this moment when he is unwilling to act. What does he say? It is more for my welfare that the sons of Dhritrast, armed, should slay me. Unarmed and unresisting, I will not fight. I will not fight. He says... It is better that I don't fight. Let them enjoy. They are my brothers. How, what difference does it make? After all, my cousins. They didn't. They didn't give me the place to stay. It's okay. I can stay in my in-laws' place. They are kind and generous people. <laughs> Drupad and Virat both are big, uh, emp, you know, kings in their own right. And, or I can even be a mendicant. But how can I enjoy kingdom after? Fighting with my own brothers. Sounds very, very logical. (laughs) The character of this inner crisis is therefore not the questioning of the thinker. Thinker will justify it somehow. It is a... not a recoil from the appearances of life and a turning of the eye inward in search of the truth of the things, the real meaning of existence and a solution or an escape from the dark riddle of the world. It is the sensational, emotional and moral revolt of the man, hitherto satisfied with action and its current standards, who finds himself cast by them into a hideous chaos where they are in violent conflict with each other. And, with themselves and there is no moral standing ground left nothing to lay hold of and walk by no dharma so this is the kind of crisis Arjun is facing page 26 so what does one do? we can understand the dilemma if we were to face this dilemma how would we act? we can't act selfishly We can't act under passion. We can't act out of self-interest. We can't act out of egoistically proving a point. Higher than this is unselfish action for family, for friends, for group. Now, if this also, you are called upon to engage in an action where these very people, for whom you are ready to subdue or subordinate your selfishness, if they are now getting affected, so what should I do? So this is the question of Arjun, and what is Krishna's answer. Yet it is precisely this secret for which he does not ask or at least so much of the knowledge as is necessary to lead him into a higher life to which the divine teacher intends to lead this disciple. He is not asking. He is simply saying, I will not fight. Done. Period. Finished. He has not asked for any secret. He believes that he knows it's not good to fight. Seeking Krishna's approval. But Sri Krishna tells him, what has happened to you? What has overcome you? This cowardice, when all your training, your preparation is for this moment. And now you are acting like a cowardly person (laughs) because the battle is much deeper. For he means him to give up all dharmas, the divine teacher. Now, what does he ultimately tell him in the end? To give up all dharmas. Dharma here is standards of conduct. except the one broad and vast rule of living consciously in the divine and acting from that consciousness. So, what is the ultimate solution? All standards of conduct are relative. They are important in their own right. If I have to choose between my personal enjoyment and of those my friends, I should follow the Buddhist doctrine of Renouncing my personal pleasure for the sake of other joy. Mother gives that example where she goes to watch in a theatre a show and she notices that there is a man sitting behind. He is unable to see because, you know, mother is tall and, you know. So what she does is slightly, she sits in the chair. Slightly she, you know, um, crouches a little bit. She says, I could not, she doesn't use the word I. She tells about a woman, but it's her own story. She was an adept in Buddhist yoga. So she could not watch, but she says, I felt a great joy because he could watch. Now this is Buddhism in practice, and which is very good. There is a place for that. But there is a time when this also does not help because you can apply it in all these situations. But for example, you can be a, you know, when you, as I said, parents or teachers, they are. But supposing they are engaged in an action, which is not right from the highest divine standpoint, which is in contradiction to what the divine intends, what do you do then? So there comes the highest divine standards: is to live consciously in the divine and. He says, the one broad and vast rule of living consciously in the divine and acting from that consciousness. Therefore, we should always, instead of mental ideas and idealisms, we should consult the divine presence in the heart. And based on that, we should go and act. Regardless of what people may say or not say. Because people will say anyways, any which ways. So, this is the highest standard. Sarva dharman Therefore, after testing the completeness of his revolt from the ordinary standards of conduct, he proceeds to tell him much that has to do with the state of the soul, but nothing of any outward rule of action. So, what does Sri Krishna say? He says, first get into the right state. One of the practical implications of this is never taken decision, especially important decision, decision which has implications upon not only your life, but the collective life of humanity in a disturbed state. The disturbance may come because of a mental idea, agitation, mental agitation. It may be because vital interests are. it may come because of passions which have been whipped up. Don't take an action in that state. Quiet in, quiet in. Try to contact. When you have the clarity, whatever be the action, go and undertake. So he speaks about the state of the soul. He must be equal in soul. Abandon the desire of the fruits of work. So we want to act according to certain fruits. Results we have fixed in our mind. And if the results don't come, we are willing to go any extent. We'll go to court, we'll tell lies, we'll do everything. Why? Because we want a certain result. Our pride is hurt, our ego is hurt. That's not the way that we, one should proceed. So this where he says very clearly, he proceeds to tell him much that has to do with the state of the soul. He must be equal in soul, abandon the desire of the fruits of work, rise above his intellectual notions of sin and virtue, live and act in yoga with a mind in samadhi, firmly fixed, that is to say, in the divine alone. Here we have a definition of samadhi. It is nothing to do with sitting and withdrawing level 4 of meditation, level 5, level 7. We practice only level one of meditation to live in the one. Mind should be fixed in the eternal. Then success may come, defeat may come. There is a beautiful line from Srivastava's poem, Divine Worker. Victory is thy passage mirrored through fortune's glass. Failure is cradled on thy deathless arms. Both ways, doesn't matter. But the joy of doing things because it is in your highest state that you are doing it. What happens is divines, it, it may happen, may not happen. You have sown the seed in this world. Shura sent his emissary, Durai Swami Ayer, to tell the then Congress government to accept the Crips proposal. They didn't accept. Both Shura and the mother said India is going to have a terrible time now. In fact, the mother went to, to trance and says they have not accepted and this would lead to lot of bloodshed. Partition took place subsequently. Srivastava was asked, why didn't you, uh, why did you send the emissary? Because you would have seen. He says, yes, still you must act. Because you have opened the door of a possibility. Still must act. Because even if not today, tomorrow, one day, you have put your weight on the side of dharma. It may not bear fruit today. Like Jhansi Rani, she died. It was, if you look at it, it was a battle whose conclusion was foregone. Yet she fought, she died and yet she awakened that fire in India. So that's how you must act. And then of course when she says that your mind should be fixed in the divine because mind of knowledge, that's how you are acting in sensations, you are acting in emotion, your mind should be fixed in knowledge. So naturally he asks that uh, you are saying that knowledge is better and yet you are asking me to engage in this action. So all these Sri Krishna will answer. Just a few more lines. Page 26, down below. Arjun breaks out impatiently because he speaks about your mind should be fixed in a state of samadhi with your intelligence turned inwards and upwards and then act. So he says, if thou holdest thy intelligence to be greater than action, why then dost thou appoint me to an action terrible in its nature? Thou bewilderest my understanding with a mingled word. Speak one thing decisively by which I can attain to what is the best. People say, I wish Sri and the mother we could ask questions. You will seldom find them saying, do this and don't do this. Seldom. In fact, Srivastava said, if we say this and then you don't do it, it has serious consequences. But they would say, what should be your state? He would say, it is better if you take this course of action. So this is how they have allowed the freedom. There is a freedom and there is a compulsion. If we misuse the freedom, the divine compulsion will break through all the fortresses of justification and hit us hard because ultimately divine will prevails. The rest of Arjun's question and utterances proceed from the same temperament and character because, you know, he's a pragmatic man. And last paragraph. When his doubts and perplexities are resolved and he knows that it is the divine which must be his law, he aims again and always at such clear and decisive knowledge as will guide him practically to this source and this rule of his future action. So what is the rule? Act in the divine. Act for the sake of the divine. Live in the divine. Live for the divine. Live by the divine. All other things... If you don't know the divine will, then act by your highest standard. But if the divine will is clear, follow it. One may not understand it now. There is a purpose why the divine's play unfolds in a certain way. If there is doubt about the will, yes, try whatever way. But wherever there is something which the divine has foreordained, foreordained, then follow it. This is the simplest. Because the divine wisdom sees eons ahead. Not just that little moment. The people I have heard say, Oh, Mother and Shabindu said that at that point of time. They didn't foresee this. What kind of statement is that? I don't understand. You are as good as saying they are not divine. Only saying it in a very... Yeah. They have foreseen everything. And if they have said something, they understand very well what they have said. And it's so simple to just follow them. Don't worry about other things. They will take care of the rest. To such a disciple, the teacher of the Gita gives his divine teaching. Next page, He seizes him at a moment of his psychological development by egoistic action. When all the mental, moral, emotional values of the ordinary, egoistic and social life of man have collapsed in his sudden bankruptcy. When does the divine come to us? When we have tried by our highest means and we are struggling, but we cannot find what is the way. If man is too sure of his way, God remains in the background. That we read in chapter 1 or chapter 2. He says, okay, proceed, you will learn. <laughs> Maybe after a lifetime. <laughs> he does not interfere. He thinks too self-assured of his mind. One man walks with that little light. But the moment man feels, I don't know, I, I don't understand. That's the time. It may be in the battlefield, it may be in the market, it may be in your house, it may be sitting and contemplating, it may be in a situation. And that moment he entered through that little door where the intellect fails in its self-sufficiency and it looks for a higher guidance. To such a disciple, the Gita is given. Last line. The whole course of the teaching of the Gita is determined and directed even in its Widest wheelings toward the fulfillment of these three objects. What are the three objects? We'll quickly read. First is that he is realizes the insufficiency, psychological crisis in an egoistic action. A second is he is at the same time to give him that for which he asks and for which he is inspired to seek by the guidance within him, a new law of life and action high above the insufficient rule of the ordinary human existence. So, it is not enough that he gives him a do and don't. Now he wants it as a rule of life, a new standard of conduct. If he tells him, okay, you fight and he agrees, that's not enough. So, also the second issue is, whenever I face these dilemmas, how do I act? So it gives him, uh, he lifts up the higher standard before him. That up till now, it's not only about this war Arjun. all your life, remember now, live for the divine. Follow the divine guidance. And then, thirdly, this is there, for the action must be performed. Many times we say, okay, I'll take a neutral stand. There is nothing like a neutral position according to Gita. Neutral position is a position. not taking side is a side (laughs) that we see in the Gita in the Mahabharata (laughs) of course you don't need to take sides here, there, everywhere and you get into politics but there are moments when you need to take a side or a stand, take a stand (laughs) action must be performed why it should be performed? the third thing the, the world must fulfill its cycles And the soul of the human being must not turn back in ignorance from the work it is here to do. So somebody has said very rightly and beautifully, the world has not suffered so much because of the wrongdoings of the evil people. It has suffered much more because of the silence of the good. We have chosen not to speak. So (laughs) we will stop here and continue next week. And it's like a suspense thriller because Arjuna has asked a question. <laughs> Actually, every human being's question, how is Sri Krishna going to resolve this? And he's not going to simply say, do this and don't do this. He will say that, but he will tell the whole principle behind action itself. So the Gita liberates us even from ourselves. Okay. Namaste.